Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. We are continuing the discussion of the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which led to the creation of the modern Middle East. And before we get into today's episode, a very brief recap of the last episode. We discussed how British India was not at all happy with Kitchener's plan to establish an Arab caliph. They did not like the idea of London and Cairo meddling with these regions that British India thought were their domain. British India or government officials within British British India also had connections with several Arab leaders in the region, and they knew that Kitchener's plan was borderline crazy. We also discussed how Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, who was the Sharif of Mecca, how he was dealing with several factors and he had to navigate the political pressure coming at him from several different fronts. We mentioned how the Arab nationalists in the region, they they wanted him to start a war with the Ottomans and they wanted independence from the Ottomans. We also mentioned how his boss, the Ottoman government, represented by the Young Turks, how they actually wanted to replace him with someone that they could trust more. We also mentioned how there were other Arab groups like the Saudis under the future king of Saudi Arabia, Abdulaziz ibn Saud, how the Saudis did not recognize his authority and actually viewed him as a rival and enemy. And then finally, we also discussed the British who wanted to use him as a tool against the Ottomans. And so with that, let's get into today's episode, which is mostly a discussion of some of the early military conflicts that the Ottomans had in this war. And this is, of course, World War I. The British, for their concern, They are not really worried about the Middle East, though they are going to be drawn into the Middle East soon in the early period of the war, late 1914, early 1915. They did not really think that there was going to be much military action in the Middle East. Their primary focus was on the European front, where uh, Europeans, British and French, Germans and Russians were dying by the thousands. And I do mean by the thousands. So Kitchener's actions, his meddling in the Middle East, trying to establish connections with Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, all the things that Kitchener was doing, all of this stuff was intended for the future of the Middle East after the Ottomans were defeated. And Kitchener, this is Lord Kitchener, who was the British Secretary of War, Kitchener, like most Europeans, did not really think the Ottoman Empire was a serious military threat. And so they expected the Ottomans to be defeated and for the um, Middle East to be divvied up amongst the Europeans. The Russians, for their part, they, they were a little bit more concerned about the Ottomans. At first, they were not really worried about them, and they were having a difficult enough time against the Germans. The Germans, by the way, are fighting on a two-front war. To their west, they're fighting the French and the British. To their east, they're fighting the Russians. And the Russians are not doing very well against the Germans at all. And the Russians are very concerned about their southern front once the Ottomans actually entered the war. 
They weren't they weren't really concerned about how much damage the Ottomans could actually do. It's just that the the Russians had had uh, shifted so much of their military personnel to the European to the European front, and they had had neglected a lot of their military in the southern front against the Ottomans. So the Russians they probably had a little bit more to worry about than the British, or at least more than the British thought they had to worry about. And so with that, let's get into some of the military conflicts. The first military conflict and that the that the Ottomans were involved in, this is land military that is, was the Bergman offensive. And this was led by a Russian general named Georgi Bergman. He wanted to capture the Ellis Skirt Valley to prevent Turkish forces from invading the Caucasus region. And you might not know what the Ellis Skirt Valley is. I understand that. I have had maps that kind of point everything out. I strongly encourage you to go to the show notes, which will be at islamichistorypodcast.com slash bonus seven. I strongly encourage you, if you want to get an idea of where all these battles took place, go there and I have maps there that can kind of guide you through and you can have a mental image of where these things are. So, um, General Bergman, he wants to go ahead and capture the Eliskert Valley, to, which is in Turkey, uh, close to the Turkish region of um, the Caucasus region, close to the Tur- where Turkey and the Caucasus meets. He wants to capture this region to keep Turkish forces from penetrating deeper into the Caucasus region. The Ottoman Empire at this time was bordered by what we now know of as the modern nations of Georgia, Armenia, and Northwest Iran. Most of Armenia at this time, what we consider modern Armenia at this time, was really known as Eastern Armenia, and it was an autonomous part of the Russian Empire. But there was also a Western Armenia, which was called Ottoman Armenia. So Armenia was divided into two separate portions. And Armenia is going to play a role in the future as we get there. But Armenia was divided into two portions, or an eastern part that was kind of under the protection of the Russian Empire, and then a western part, which was part of the Ottoman Empire. But all of this region is collectively known as the Caucasus regions. Just above what we now know of as as uh, Georgia and Armenia were the Caucasus Mountains, and the Caucasus Mountains formed like a natural border between the two empires, between the Russians and the Ottomans. And this entire region, as you can naturally expect, is very hilly and very mountainous. So Bergman's Russian forces moved into the Eliskert Valley, which was part of Ottoman Armenia, which is Western Armenia, they moved into this part of of Turkey or the Ottoman Empire on November 2nd, 1914. And they secured their positions and they had now a foothold in the Ottoman Armenia region, (laughs) the region of Ottoman Armenia. But General Bergman, he decided to push even further and capture even more Ottoman territory. This is where he made his mistake. As he tried to push further into Ottoman territory, Ottoman forces began to attack him. This happened around November 7th, so about five days after he first moved into the region. And Ottoman forces, they advanced on the Russians on both their left and right flanks, and they were led by an Ottoman general named Hassan Izzet. Hassan's forces were able to fight off the the Russians and force them to retreat 
all the way back to the Russian stronghold in Sarakamish. Sarakamish is located in the foothills of the Caucasus Mountains, and this was a fortified uh, Russian area. So even though Bergman's Russian forces had captured the Elliskert Valley on November 2nd, they lost all that territory when the Ottomans retaliated and pushed them further back. The Ottomans could have kept on pushing Bergman even further back, but by November 17th, Russian reinforcements had arrived, and so the Russians and the Ottomans kind of fought each other to a to a standstill, and they had their their um, lines of defense set, and that was that for a while. And so things start off pretty good for the Ottomans. They happen, they repel a Russian invasion. They were able to push the Russians out and they show the Russians that they're not as weak as they may have presumed them to be. But then Enver Pasha, who is the Ottoman minister of war, and he commands the entire Ottoman military, he decides it's time for him to get some, get himself some glory. And he goes ahead and ruins everything that the Ottomans had gained thus far. So just very briefly about Enver Pasha, we had already discussed his basic life in some earlier episodes. And as I mentioned before, I'm not a great big fan of the Young Turks. I think they they pretty much destroyed the Ottoman Empire. They drove them into this war that the Caliph did not really want. And they just completely ruined it. And in this battle that these two battles we're about to see, we're going to see how the Young Turks and Enver Pasha was a he was the leading member of the Young Turks. We're going to see how the Young Turks messed things up even more. Now Enver Pasha for for all his faults, he was a very brave and daring commander, but he was not a very good military commander, nor was he nor was he a very good military administrator. So yeah, he, he didn't really do a good job in, in, in what comes up next. And his German counterparts actually thought he was a fool. So he was hoping to get some glory on the battlefield. And he was very pleased by the reversal of Bergman's offensive. He was very pleased that uh, General Hassan Izzet had managed to regain some territory that the Russians had initially taken in Elliskert Valley. So now Enver Pasha, he wanted to make an even bolder move. Enver Pasha wanted to push further into the Caucasus region, cross over the Caucasus mountains, and basically dislodge and capture all the Russian territory in this area. He was hoping that he would be able to push the Russians out of the Caucasus uh, region. And once they were through the mountains and they were able to attack the Russians, and he had this big grand plan of attacking the Russians from three different directions. When they, once they had done all that, he then wanted to go down towards Afghanistan and then on to British India. And much of this was fueled by Enver Pasha's desire to retake territory that the Ottomans had lost during the Russo-Turkish War of 1877. Much of this Turkish, much of this um, Caucasus region, the um, Ottomans had lost to the Russians in this war. So he was hoping to take this back and then go down into Afghanistan. And so he had a, he had a big grand plan. Let's see how all this plays out. 
So Enver Pasha's first plan was to attack the Russian base at Sarakamish. We mentioned that after the Ottomans had repelled General Bergman's initial entry, initial invasion into Turkey, that the Russians had finally uh, pulled back and fell back into into Sarakamish, which was um, the, the strongest, most fortified Russian base in the area. This base called Sarakamish, it was located in what's known as the, believe it or not, Allahu Akbar Mountains in what is modern-day eastern Turkey. These mountains can go as high as 9,000 feet, but the, um, but the Russians were well entrenched and they had it pretty well guarded. But this was the location and major concentration of most of the Russians, Russian soldiers and forces in this region. And so naturally and, and rightfully so, Enver Pasha saw this as a viable target. However, Enver Pasha may not have been the man to plan this whole thing out. Much of his battle plan was based on tactics that Napoleon had used almost a hundred years earlier with weapons from a hundred years earlier. So a lot of the things that he was talking about doing weren't viable in these days. Back in the days when they were mostly using muskets and people wore bright colored soldiers wore bright colored uniforms and, and all these things. This was not the place for that, but Enver Pasha didn't seem to do so. What he wanted to do, he wanted to try to encircle the Russian forces at Sarakamish, but uh, in order to do though to do this, he would ha- it required precise, coordinated movements from the Ottoman forces coming from various different directions and many different divisions. Enver Pasha, he never considered how difficult this would be without vehicles and without troop transports. We mentioned how really behind the times the um, Ottoman Empire was. They, they didn't have proper roads. Didn't They only had like 200 cars in the entire empire at a time when the United States had over a million cars. The Ottoman Empire only had 200. They did not have the proper troop transports and machines to transport large numbers of troops over a, a large distance. They didn't have trains. They didn't have any of these things. And Enver Pasha didn't consider any of these, any of these obstacles, any of these logistical problems that he was going to face. Not to mention the fact that in order to pull off this move, it required excellent coordination and perfect precision by the Ottoman troops. Just trying to just try to imagine coordinating coordinating the movements of thousands upon thousands of troops across several hundred miles moving moving across a a large distance trying to get to some point at 1914 when communications weren't that great they wouldn't that would be difficult even now just imagine how much more difficult it was in 1914 so Enver Pasha's plan was to bring in thousands of troops from all across the empire to try to pull off this maneuver once again remember that they have hundreds of miles to cover in order to try to encircle the 
uh, the Russian base at Sarakamish. They were covering relatively flat land in the beginning, but as they got closer and closer to the Allahu Akbar mountains, these uh, the terrain was going to get much hillier and much more treacherous. And remember, there were no railroads at all in this region and only a few roads. Much of this region was really a vast, impassable wilderness. Now, there were some roads in the region, but as they got into the mountains and as they, as they climbed into the mountains, these, these roads got very steep and very narrow. And so the Ottomans, all of their supplies had to be carried by animals, by camels and oxen and horses over hundreds of miles through the mountains in winter. We can kind of see where this is going. To make things even worse, instead of just being the the uh, po- politician who stays at home and and commands his generals to do things, Enver Pasha decided to lead the battle himself. How did this happen? Well, first, the um, general Hassan Izzet, who had reversed Bergman's offensive the month before, he disagreed with Enver Pasha's plan. He saw the the foolishness of it and he thought it was crazy and he did not agree with his plan. General Hassan, he wanted to play a defensive role. They had managed to repel the the Russians. They were in their own territory. It was going to be just as difficult for the Russians as it was going to be for the Ottomans. He felt he had already fortified the Ottoman position. He wanted to play a defensive role. General Hassan, he was hoping that the Russians would initiate an attack, but because Hassan had fortified the Ottoman position, he knew or he at least felt that if the Russians did try to attack in this region, the Rus- the Ottomans would be able to repel any sort of invasion they tried. He went on to advise Enver Pasha that the Ottoman troops, they did not have the winter gear. Remember now, this was now in December 1914. He advised in Vipasha that the uh, that the the Ottoman troops didn't have winter gear and they weren't trained for winter fighting like the Russians probably most likely almost certainly were. But when General Hassan disagreed with Enver Pasha, Enver Pasha relieved him of duty and he decided to take control of the army himself. So, yeah, he fired he fired his general, the, the, the most successful general they had thus far. He fired his general and decided to take it himself. Shows you just how pompous and arrogant Enver Pasha was. It wasn't just this general who thought Enver Pasha's plan was crazy. The German military officers in the region who were helping the Ottomans, they also advised against a frontal attack against the Russians, especially at this stronghold, especially now. Now, let's be clear. The Germans definitely wanted the Ottomans to put pressure on the Russians in the Caucasus. They were hoping that if the Ottomans can put some pressure on the Russians to the south, this would force the Russians to draw troops from the European front down into the south, making it easier for the Germans, because the Germans weren't having it any that, that easy either. Now, they were really putting a, a whooping on the Russians at this time, but the Russians, I'm sorry, the Germans were fighting a two-front war. So they really had a difficult. So they didn't mind if the Ottomans began to put pressure on the Russians from the south. But the Germans thought it was going to be foolish to attack a mountain, a fortress 
during the winter, especially when the Russians were in a strong position in the mountains and they had the high ground. They realized how foolish this was. But once again, Enver Pasha did not listen and he left Istanbul for the front lines with his army on December 6, 1914. And this would begin the Battle of Sarakamish. So, a brief discussion on the Ottoman troops who were going to be involved. On top of all the other problems that we mentioned, all the all of the logistical problems, the Ottoman troops involved in this battle were not the best of, of the Ottoman troops. The Ottomans soldiers that had the most experience, they were sent off to defend the Gallipoli Peninsula, which was a vital region that guarded the naval passage to the Strait of Dardanelles. And I'm going to have to, you guys have to look at the maps if you're not sure where all of these things are. So once again, the maps will be included in the, in the show notes and hopefully some of this will make sense to you. But uh, because they didn't really have the best troops there, the Ottomans had to kind of pull troops from wherever they could get them. So, in fact, many of the soldiers involved in the battle were not actually soldiers. They were actually policemen who had been forced into the military service. Now, the Turks had to bring in thousands of soldiers from all across the empire. That's because they really didn't have that many soldiers in this region, on this eastern region where they were going to fight the Russians. Before the war, most of the Ottoman forces had been concentrated in the west, which was closest to the Balkan region where the Ottomans had recently fought and lost two Balkan wars. And so now they had to do a lot of shifting and, and drafting and pulling in soldiers from all over. And so that's how the Ottoman forces were made up. On the Russian side, however, there were uh, already the regular Russian troops that were there, but there were also thousands of Armenian volunteers who had joined the Russian military. Most of these Armenians, they were Eastern Orthodox Christians, just like most Russians were. Now, while there were lots of volunteers, Armenian volunteers, there were also thousands of ethnic Armenians who were already part of the regular Russian army. So when the Russians found out that Enver Pasha was at an Ottoman base in the region, they had an idea, they had an inkling that something big was about to happen. Enver Pasha was the secretary of war or the minister of war. It would, he would not be in this region unless something big was about to happen. So we'll get into the battle now. At first, once again, things started off pretty good for the Ottomans. Going along with Enver Pasha's plan to encircle and surround the Russians at Sarakamish, two Ottoman divisions, they had attacked the town of Ultu, which is about 35 miles northwest of Sarakamish. This took place on December 23rd. The two Ottoman divisions, they were successful and they were able to drive the Russians out of this town of Ultu. A third Ottoman division, they attacked the Russian base at Sarakamish from the southwest, and their job was to attack the Russians from the southwest and keep them pinned down and hold them down long enough for those two other divisions at Altu to arrive and attack from the north. And that's where things start to go bad. So the two divisions that had 
pushed the Russians out of the town of Oltu. They were the Ottoman 9 and 10 Corps. They, after they pushed the Russians out of Oltu, they left Oltu, marched north above Sarakamish, then wheeled south and started pushing down towards Sarakamish from the north. They marched for three days through cold and ice. And all of this was to put Enver's crazy encircling plan into action. Unfortunately, as they marched for these three days, because of the heavy snow, because of the mountainous region, they had to leave a lot of their artillery behind because they just couldn't get it through the snow. The troops... The Ottoman troops, as they were traveling, marching for these three days, they had to camp out in the cold where the temperatures could drop to as low as minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Just on this three-day march alone, down to Sarakamish from the north, just on this march, thousands of Ottoman troops died before they ever even got to fight any other Russians at Sarakamish. On top of that, because of the logistic problems, the Ottoman soldiers also ran out of food. On top of that, the snow, it was snowing and it was winter, the snow blocked the few good roads that there were in the region and the troops got lost. Many of the troops got lost wandering, wandering around in this dizzying whiteness and just pure whiteness with no roads to tell them where to go. Just try to imagine that picture Thousands of troops got lost in the wilderness and many more continued to freeze to death. When those troops that did survive this three-day march, when they finally arrived at Sarakamish, after all of this, this, uh, this hardship, all of these hardships that they had gone through, they did not arrive coordinated. They did not come all together. In order for Enver Pasha's plan to have any, any chance of success, it required, once again, perfect precision and perfect coordination. But after three days of pretty much death and destruction by nature alone, it just wasn't possible. So little groups of soldiers would arrive at Sarakamish one by one by one. And as they came in, the Russians just picked them off. They were easy for the Russians to just pop off. So rather than thousands of soldiers arriving north of Sarakamish at the same time, it was just small groups. And as they came in, the Russians wiped them out. On top of that, it gets worse. Russian reinforcements began coming in. And they attacked those remaining soldiers coming in from the north. So, so most of those two divisions that had had success in Altu and marched north and then turned south on Sarakamish, most of those soldiers were killed. Almost all of them were killed. With that threat taken out of the way, the Russians within Sarakamish, they could now focus completely on those Ottoman soldiers who were attacking from the south. And these Ottoman soldiers in the, in the south who were attacking the Russians, they were also having their problem, problems. Many of them had been weakened by the cold and many of them had died from the difficult decision. So their numbers had also been decimated. So you had the Russians who were already at the base. You had the reinforcements coming in. And then that uh, procession that was supposed to come from the north and help out, those guys were gone. And so 
with the advantage clearly in the Russians' hands, they took on the offensive and they left their base, left their defensive positions and began to root out the Ottomans and completely destroy them. The remaining Ottoman forces finally began to retreat on January 17th. 1915. Enver Pasha, he had left Turkey. He had gone on into this battle with the different estimates, but roughly around 100,000 soldiers. Of those 100,000, over 80,000 were killed or taken prisoner. He returned home with less than 20,000 of the 100,000 soldiers that he had left with. The Russian forces, by the way, that they were opposing had numbered only about 70,000. So the Ottomans did have the, the uh, numerical advantage, just did not have the leadership advantage. This was one of the few times in World War I where an entire army was destroyed. Most cases when people battle, they either battle to a stalemate or they take losses and then pull off before they're completely destroyed. This is one of the few few occasions where the entire army was destroyed. There was really no turning back for the Ottomans at this point. They had lost a good portion of their military in this one foolish battle by Enver Pasha, and things don't really get better from there. We're not done yet. Enver Pasha wasn't the only person looking for glory among the young Turks. There's also Jamal Pasha. He was the Ottoman minister of the Navy. He was concerned that Enver Pasha was getting all the glory, even though he he probably was not aware of the debacle that was happening in Sarakamish at this time. But because he thought Enver Pasha was getting all the glory, he decided to uh, command a battle of his own. And he decided to attack the Suez Canal and take that from the British. And so... Jamal Pasha, he led the Ottoman 4th Army towards the Sinai Peninsula. The 4th Army was based in modern-day Syria, and the march began on January 15, 1915. Fortunately for this army, winter weather wouldn't be an issue in this part of the world. But once again, the Ottomans were hampered by bad logistics. The roads were pretty darn bad in this area also. In fact, they were so darn bad, horse-drawn carriages could not even get through. And so, much of the heavy equipment had to actually be carried by the Ottoman soldiers themselves. And mind you, mind you, they had to cross over a hundred miles of desert in the Sinai Peninsula, carrying heavy military equipment. So you can imagine how difficult this was. While the Ottomans were trekking through the desert, the British were tracking their movements. The British had airplanes, and they were just flying over, taking reports of the Ottoman movements and feeding feeding them back to the British forces at the Suez Canal. And so by the time the Ottomans finally reached the Suez Canal, the British were were well and ready. The Ottomans finally got to the canal on February 3rd, 1915, but they didn't really have a good way to get over. For one, the British were ready for them. 
Two, the British had better weapons, and the British were also able to fire safely from their bases on the other side, other side of the canal. So now the Ottomans had to figure out how to get across the canal uh, to attack the British on the other side of the canal. The Germans had provided the Ottomans with pontoon bridges to cross the canal and get over to the British side, but unfortunately the Ottoman troops did not really know how to use them. So they finally had to use lots of different makeshift boats and rafts instead to cross the canal. And as they tried to cross the canal, British artillery artillery just bombarded them. Even if they had gotten the bridge made, it is still very likely British artillery would have just torn it to pieces, but it didn't even matter. As the Ottomans tried to get across the canal and whatever boats or rafts they could get, the British just took target practice with them, blowing them out of the water. Ultimately, about 600 Ottoman soldiers were able to cross to the other side of the canal, but as soon as they landed, they were killed or taken prisoner. Jamal Pasha, eventually, he did not lose as many soldiers as his um, colleague Enver Pasha did, but Jamal Pasha realized that there was going to be no easy way to attack the Suez Canal, and he finally ordered a retreat, and he pulled back into Ottoman territory. In this battle, the Ottomans lost 2,000 soldiers, while the British lost less than 40. So these were the first two big debacles in the Ottoman war effort. But the problems don't end there. Not only were the young Turks ruining the Ottomans on the battlefield, they were also ruining them at home as well. I'm sorry, y'all. The more I read about the Young Turks, the the less I like them. But anyway, like most of the other um, military and political leaders at this time, Enver Pasha from the um, the Ottoman government, he thought that it was going to be a quick war. He was not at all prepared for a long, drawn out affair, and so he tried. As it became obvious that this was not going to be a quick war, he tried to fix things, but all of his efforts to fix things only made things worse. First, in order to make up for the complete destruction of his army at the Battle of Sarakamish, he put out a draft order ordering all eligible men in the empire to report for military duty. Their orders were to bring enough food to last them for three days. However, the Ottoman recruitment centers, they weren't ready to handle such large numbers of soldiers. And so all of these potential recruits, they arrived in Istanbul at wherever the recruiting stations, stations were. They arrived and they just sat around waiting to be processed. But because the centers weren't prepared for it, they sat around for several days. Eventually their food ran out and all these young men who could have been put into the Ottoman military, many of them just drifted away and left. And But once they left the recruitment centers, they were also afraid to return because if they returned, they might be labeled as draft dodgers and then punished. On top of all that, with most of the young men suddenly yanked away from home, the 
agriculture sector of the Ottoman Empire began to suffer. The Ottoman Empire at this time was by and large an agricultural society. Honestly, even the United States at this time was still primarily an agricultural society, but the United States had a very strong and robust industrial sector as well, as did many other uh, Western nations, Britain, definitely France, and maybe not Italy, Germany, certainly. Germany had a very good one. Russia is not so great, but Ottoman Empire was behind all these countries. In the Ottoman Empire, they depended on agriculture. But to yank all the young men away from the agriculture, then you only have old men and women to handle the farming. Not saying they can't do it, but it kind of changes things a lot. So most of the Ottoman uh, and most of the um, the Ottoman economy was driven by agriculture, by the sale of grain and kind. But with most of the men away, the farms faltered. Also pack animals, which were needed for the farm, most of them were were confiscated for use in the military. So in this this empire that didn't really have much industry, people were the military was taking away people's horses and oxen and all that and camels and all that kind of stuff, which they needed for the agriculture, making the agricultural part of the Ottoman Empire go even worse. On top of that, the crops that were made and that were able to be shipped off and harvested and all, most of these crops were once again diverted for military use also. And so with all of these foolish policies coming from the young Turks, this led to famine in many parts of the Ottoman Empire, even though the harvest was good and even though there weren't any weather issues. With the cop- the crops going uh, being diverted for military use, with the farms not being handled by by having not having any young men to care for them, with animals being taken away, all these problems led to food shortages and famine. With food shortages, the government had to ration the food, particularly in parts where the government had pretty good control, such as Istanbul, the capital. Well, this created a black market, which led to criminals who took advantage of the situation. Now, for years, we mentioned before that the Ottoman Empire never really had good roads or railroads. And so for years, most of the crops within the, mili- within the Ottoman Empire had to be shipped by sea. But now that they were at war... That was also a problem because now the Allies could attack Ottoman merchant ships at will. The British had the best navy in the world. The French weren't too far behind. And the British and French navies pretty much controlled the Mediterranean Sea. And so they could hit and destroy Ottoman merchant ships anytime they wanted. And so that prevented a lot of transportation of crops and goods from different parts of the empire. And then there was also the Black Sea, which the Ottomans could have probably had some control over, but because they had to put so much focus on the Strait of Dardanelles, they pulled back much of their navy, giving up control of the Black Sea to the Russians. So the Ottoman economy, which was already pretty weak to begin with, began to fall apart completely. The Ottoman Empire now had to depend on food and supplies coming from the Germans. They had to depend on the Germans shipping them food 
by land or by train or by camel or however it got in, they had to depend on the Germans. The government now ran into debt and could even pay its own bills because the Ottoman merchants in the area, they couldn't import or export anything. There was nothing for the government to tax, meaning no money was coming into the government either. In order to deal with this situation, the Ottomans made, thing wor- made things worse. Let's just say the young Turks made things worse by printing off paper money that had nothing behind it. With this, inflation increased in the Ottoman Empire by over 1,000%. The Ottoman economy was broken. It was in shambles. And the young Turks, they were completely clueless on what to do. In the next episode, inshallah, we're going to discuss Britain's plans to attack Turkey and to attack the Middle East and attack the Ottoman Empire. We might even get into the attack on the Dardanelles, but we'll see how that goes. So I hope this gave you, this uh, this episode gives you an idea of the Young Turks' handling of the early stages of the war. Considering how things are right now, I have a feeling it's only going to get a lot worse before things get any better. But anyway, that's going to uh, that's going to end it for today's episode. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Islamic History. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.